Unwrap your gift now, but pay later. Right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Put no money down, no payment, and no interest for up to 24 months. Our elves work year-round, installing in as little as a day. Offer ends December 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Who is Victor Boot? Now, we all know who Brittany Griner is by now. Brittany Griner is the former or present a WNBA star who made a series of stupid decisions. First of all, on the eve, essentially, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, she decided that she was going to leave the United States and she was going to fly into Russia with the idea that she was going to play for, you know, one of the, these club basketball teams that are there. So she wanted to make money. Okay, that that's all well and good. In addition to making that decision, though, she decided to pack a very, very small quantity of uh, hashish oil in her um, in her luggage. Now, it, again, very, very small quantity, about the size of a nickel, clearly a, a personal use sort of qual- uh, amount. Her story was kind of alternated. It was either I forgot it was there or it was just personal use. I didn't think of it, but it was very, very stupid to do that. I think we can all agree. She gets busted at an airport in Russia, and next thing you know, she finds herself tried and sent to a gulag, a penal colony, for nine years. Now, of course, this was ridiculous. She was clearly uh, being held as a political prisoner, and the the international community in general and in in the United States, you, you had a lot of people who were standing up and they were, oh, this is just terrible, it's terrible, and it, and it was terrible. Don't get me wrong. It was terrible. She was clearly being held a, as a political prisoner by the evil Russian empire. So the news today is that we have agreed to a prisoner swap. Um, Brittany Griner is going to be released after being caught in possession of a very, very small quantity of hashish oil. In return, Russia is not going to, in addition, Russia is not going to release a former U.S. Marine who has been convicted and he's been imprisoned. And I think most people believe that he is unjustly imprisoned. He's been in prison for several years. Um, apparently, you know, the, originally the deal that was discussed is both both Greiner and the former Marine. Well, Russia apparently has refused to release the former Marine. So. Oh, even though Joe Biden says, well, we're not leaving people behind. We're going to try to get Paul back. Paul remains in custody in Russia. In exchange for releasing the basketball player who had the small quantity of hashish oil, we are releasing Victor Boot. So who is Victor Boot? Let me just read you a portion of the description from the New York Times today. Shortly after his conviction in 2011 on charges, including conspiring to kill American citizens, the Russian arms dealer Viktor Boot relayed a defiant message through his lawyer as he faced the prospect of decades in prison. Mr. Boot, his lawyer believes, believes this is not the end. Now, more than a decade later, Boot has been freed despite serving less than half of his 25-year prison sentence. He was exchanged on Thursday for the American basketball star Brittany Griner, who had been imprisoned in Russia for 10 months. All right, so here's the deal. Um, The attorney general at the time of his conviction, he was convicted of four counts that included conspiring to kill American citizens. 
Prosecutors said he agreed to sell anti-aircraft weapons to drug enforcement informants who were posing as arms buyers for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. The attorney general at the time, Eric Holder, okay, now Eric Holder, this is Barack Obama's attorney general, called Mr. Boot one of the world's most prolific arms dealers. He became notorious among American intelligence officials, earning the nickname Merchant of Death as he evaded capture for years. His, uh, he was probably the highest profile Russian in U.S. custody, and the prisoner Russia has campaigned the most vociferously to have returned. His return to Russia, this is the New York Times, is likely to reignite the debate over the wisdom of engaging in prisoner exchanges for Americans the United States considers wrongfully detained, as was the case with Ms. Greiner and is with another American still imprisoned in Russia, Paul Wayland, a former Marine. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Mr. Boot. This is the guy that's getting released. Um, he grew up in the capital of Tajikistan until his conscription into the Soviet military at age 18. After a term in the army, he studied Portuguese at the Military Institute of Foreign Languages in Moscow, a common entry to Russia's intelligence services. He eventually became an, off- an officer in the Russian Air Force. Um, the Soviet Union broke apart not long after Mr. Boot left the military. As Russia's economy collapsed and criminal groups thrived, he moved to the United Arab emigrants and started a cargo company that grew to a fleet of 60 planes with military supplies of former soviet states leaking into the black market his shipping empire delivered guns to rebels militants and terrorists around the world prosecutors said in the new era of privatization in russia arms traffickers were able to sell to use old soviet era social military and business networks and also develop shell companies to hide the transaction mr boot was accused of selling weapons to al-qaeda the taliban and militants in rwanda according to several investigations in his u.s indictment he and his associates associates flouted arms embargoes in sierra leone the democratic republic of congo and algeria where he sold weapons to both the government forces and the rebels fighting them his ability to avoid being captured added to his notor- notoriety among Western intelligence officials. In 1995, the Taliban forced down one of his planes in Afghanistan and seized the cargo and imprisoned the crew. Mr. Boot and his Ru- and Russian officials somehow managed to get the crew out of the country. U.S. authorities finally caught up with him in Bangkok in 2008. Mr. Boot met with an undercover drug enforcement met with undercover drug enforcement agents he believed represented rebels from Colombia's Revolutionary Armed Forces, which the United States considered a terrorist organization. When the prospective buyers told him the weapons could be used to kill American pilots, Mr. Boot responded. We have the same enemy, prosecutor said. The authorities arrested him on the spot. He was extradited extradited to the U.S. in 2010, and two years later he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Um, you get the idea. So this, this is the guy that we are turning loose and sending back to Russia in exchange for the basketball player who was caught with uh, a about a nickel size amount of of hashish oil. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now look, I I I think Brittany Griner was wrongfully imprisoned. I think she was a political 
prisoner. I think what Russia was doing in holding her was incredibly wrong. What should have happened is when they caught her with the small quantity of, of hashish oil, they should have fined her. They should have sent her back to this country. You know, you deport her. That's what you do in cases like this. But Russia realized they had a bargaining chip. They realized that you would have the United States government, in this case Joe Biden, waited till after the midterms to do this. But you re- recognize that the U.S. government put under certain pressure by some very, very prominent people, would pretty much do whatever they needed to do to get her back. Paul Whelan, the extra the Marine, nobody seems to care about him. He still stays there. But we get Brittany Griner back, but we turn loose Victor Booth, the merchant of death. My question is, it's not is it a good thing that Brittany Griner is back. That The answer to that is, of course, yes. My question is, should we have done this? Should we be trading Americans who are wrongfully detained as essentially political prisoners and held hostage for really, really dangerous, bad people. And if we do this, does it make it more likely that the next hapless American who ends up visiting Russia is going to get scooped off the streets and held as well? Do you negotiate with terrorists? And that is effectively what we have done because Russia, in this case, was behaving not as as a nation and a member of the world, but I think essentially as a rogue state. Our number, 855-616-1620, that's a WTMJ talk and text line. I think everybody should be glad that Brittany Griner is coming back. The question is, was it worth the cost? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. So let me get this straight. This is one of our texters. We get Brittany Griner, who plays basketball, and Russia gets an arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death. Seems fair. And then it's one of those smiley sort of faces. Yeah, that, that's, that is exactly what's happened. So one of our texters says, what's your solution? I said, my solution is you continue through diplomatic processes to try to, uh, again, right the wrong that is was the detention of Brittany Griner. But let us be honest here. She was held hostage. We have dealt, you know, we are dealing with a rogue nation. That is what has happened here. And this is the precedent. Now the precedent is for Russia to scoop up American citizens on Russian soil or maybe elsewhere and detain them and say, okay, we're going to hold them and we want this person back. We want that person back. You know very, very well that if this was not a high profile female basketball player, that this I don't think would have happened. But because she, again, had a certain degree of celebrity, there was pressure that was brought in this particular situation to release. And again, at least at the beginning, they were talking about releasing Paul Whelan, the former Marine as well. But Biden folded. He ended up folding. And so we've now traded the basketball player again with a small quantity of hashish oil that she stupidly left in her luggage for the merchant of death. All right, let's start with Steve in Brookfield. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Steve. Steve, Steve, Steve. Okay, we're having some problems with our phone lines. We're going to work on that. So we've been having some problems all morning. 855-616-1620. That's the um, WTMJ talk and text line. Jeff, maybe Americans and anyone should stay out of Russia. Um, Yeah, I think that that's a, a very, very good statement now, because here's the bottom line. You end up um, you end up in a situation where you're at a point where, you know, who knows exactly what's going to happen for the next American who happens to go there. Okay, let's try John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Okay, we're 
Okay, well, my producer says, give me some time to fix this. Okay, well, that's good. That's important. 855-616-1620. That's a WDMJ talk and text line. We're working our phone problem now. Jeff, this is my, this is Steve. My perspective is trying to say on the phone that it's probably for votes. But the other perspective is I don't think the administration has much ground to stand on in terms of gun control based on now who they let go. Well, that is true. We, we've just let an international arms dealer who apparently had no qualms about selling weapons that were going to be used to kill Americans, and we have, you know, let him loose. Jeff, a better trade would have been to send Hunter Biden to Russia so he could have been the board of a utility company. Jeff, absolutely not. This was a very poor political move by Biden. It shows how weak we have become as a nation and sets a very bad example and trends for terrorists in the future. How sad. Well, I don't know if it's a bad political move because Joe Biden is going to be heralded. Oh, we we brought Brittany Griner back. And again, I think bringing Brittany Griner back is is a good thing. She was held as a hostage effectively. There's no question about that in my mind. But the question becomes, how do you deal with terrorists We essentially paid a ransom to terrorists to get her back. And the lesson has always been, okay, when when you make these kind of deals, when you pay ransom, and again, I understand in this case, we didn't give Russia a bunch of money, but we gave Russia, um, in this case, it was the merchant of death. I I think you can make an argument, maybe it would have been better just to, to send some money over to, you know, Russia, um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I feel bad for Brittany, but no, we should not make trades like this. I'm sorry, but letting criminals out is far too dangerous for all the world versus the release of a sports celebrity. And keep in mind, this, I guess this wasn't just a criminal. You know, that it, it's not like we're saying, okay, this is the son of some Russian diplomat who got caught for, you know, doing fill in the blank. That th- this, this is a guy who is an international arms dealer who is responsible for the deaths of how many people that are, you know, out there. Jeff, regular folks don't have to worry. The bad guys will focus on capturing celebrities going forward. Well, you, I mean, you, you wonder about that situation. And look, let, let us be honest. This, and I, when I talked about this before, I made the point. She, this isn't Midnight Express. Okay. She's not smuggling, you know, an enormous quantity of cocaine or heroin or something like that. She's not an international drug dealer. That's not what this is. She was a basketball player who, again, if you want to look at this in the light most favorable to Brittany Griner, stupidly, you know, failed to take some hashish oil, a small quantity, you know, out of her bag. You know, that's that's the, in the light most favorable to it. Like I said earlier, what should have happened is they should have seized it. They should have fined her. They should have deported her. But they recognized they recognized that they had an opportunity to hear we're going to treat her as a political prisoner and we're going to be able to put all sorts of pressure on Joe Biden. And we know that Joe Biden is going to um He's going to cave. Jeff, as Harrison Ford stated in the movie Air Force One, if you give a monster a cookie, he will want a glass of milk. This should put all Americans on alert when traveling outside of the U.S. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any question at all. This this sets an incredibly bad precedent. There, there's n- no question about it. And the issue is, okay, where, where are we going to go from here? Jeff, of course it's worth it. Regardless of her stupidity, she is an American that needs to be released. I wonder if we would having this conversation if it was Tom Brady or Christian Yelich. 
Probably not. Well, first of all, I I doubt that Tom Brady or Christian Yelich would find themselves in this particular situation. But apart from that, she is an American and needs to be released. So this is the sentiment that I know that some people have, that you, you negotiate with terrorists, you negotiate with the rogue states, you give in. What does that mean moving forward? What is the precedent? And do you think that Russia is going to stop now? I will tell you, any American that's living anywhere, whether it's Soviet control or where you've got the secret police or whatever, this is alert. You better watch out because they've seen how this works. They know how the Biden administration is going to operate. I don't know how many more other high-profile Russians they have that are being held after being convicted of crimes. But, you know, there's now this list. Okay, we got Victor Booth out. Okay, so who do we want to, to go for next? Who are we going to use as a trading chip? And so you have these deals which are completely and totally out of proportion. Um, Jeff, this is another example. We are now soft. Well, I don't know if it's soft or not, but in this case, And again, Joe Biden, somebody said they think this is bad politics. I'm not sure it's bad politics. Trust me, you watch the national news tonight. You watch all the coverage. Joe Biden is going to be seen as, oh, this this is great. He was able to get her back. And who cares what it cost? Well, okay. should we care what it costs? And my answer would be we have set a very, very bad precedent now because at least for the next couple of years, Putin knows that if he snatches Americans, he knows that he will be able to get pretty much whatever he wants in order for him to give these Americans back. And the higher the profile of the American, the better off it will be. I'm glad Brittany Griner is coming back. Her detention was deplorable. Again, it demonstrates what a monstrous country Russia is and the monstrous things that they're willing to do. But having said all that, it's just they now understand that the United States will cave when you have these different situations, a basketball player for a thumbnail full of with, worth of hashish oil for the merchant of death doesn't seem like a very fair deal to me. One of our texters says the sad thing is one of the national TV networks this morning was on air. The people were calling the folks were calling it a big win for Biden. Uh, yeah, it's a big win for Biden. He, he's got Brittany Griner back, which is good. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like, oh, th- this is. This is great. We've traded. Well, I don't. I was going to use a sports analogy, but that de- depreciates the whole situation. We've turned loose the merchant of death back on the world in order to get a, a basketball player who was back, and that's a big win for Biden. I don't see it. Jeff is a retired Army veteran of two wars. I'm disgusted. The U.S. traded Brittany Griner for the merchant of death. More Americans will die in the future by his hand because of her. Well, that's something to look at. Okay, first things first. Help children in need from Wisconsin. Enjoy the holiday season as WTMJ partners with Capco's Kids to Kids Christmas. We are raising money to purchase toys for kids in our area. Every $25 helps two kids celebrate the season. Let us see how many kids we can help. And we've got this competition that is going on this week. Go to WTMJ.com. You'll see this banner. 
that says Kids to Kids Christmas. And then we are asking you to donate. And the various shows are, are there. And you can pick your show and then you can make a donation. And there's a little bit of a competition going on between the shows. Steve Scafidi got some big contribution today. And he's just been insufferable since then. It goes to a great cause. But, you know, you know, he he's just, like I say, he's kind of been insufferable about this. So we, we need to, to raise some money. So WTMJ.com, click on the Kids to Kids Christmas and make a donation. You can pick the show that you want to do. 25 bucks helps two kids. Um, 250 helps more. 500 helps even more. $1,000 helps even more than that. So we very much appreciate it. And we're going to be doing this fundraising through um, tomorrow. So WTMJ.com, make a donation to the Kids to Kids Christmas. We all very much appreciate it. Um, in addition, if you want to make it even easier, if you just text the word KIDS, K-I-D-S, to our talk and text line, 855-616-1620, um, then you know, we'll, we'll send you the link to do that as well. But it's a wonderful cause, and we would love to have you help us participate. If you've ever seen you know, what happens with the toys and all, you, you'd understand what a great cause this is. So uh, WTMJ.com, click on the Kids to Kids Christmas banner, make a donation. We very, very much appreciate it. All right, now before the break... I, I just threw out something I wanted you to think about. Let us assume that you have a child, a friend, a family member who is is a is, is hooked on heroin, and that person comes to you and says, "Here's the deal. Um, I, I need a thousand dollars." And and you know you know the person is a junkie, and if you give them that thousand dollars, just give them the thousand dollars. Because they say, hey, I want to have my car fixed or I want to make my rent payment or whatever. What do you think is going to happen with that $1,000? Well, they're just going to take that $1,000 and they're going to go out and they're going to spend it on dope, right? That, that's just it. If you give them the $1,000 without putting any strings on it at all, you know that they're, they're going to blow it on dope. You know that they're going to be back four days later and they're going to want more money for that. Now, if you want to help them... And you've got that thousand dollars. Maybe you say, "Okay, you know, I, here's the deal. I'm not giving you a thousand dollars, but here's what I'll do. I will go with you to the grocery store, and I'll buy groceries. And you're two months behind in rent, and I will write a check to your landlord for for the the rent. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll give you a thousand dollars worth of stuff, but I'm just not going to hand you a thousand dollars because I know what you're going to do with it. And a couple days later, you'll be back in the same situation you hear you are now, or maybe you'll be dead because you've gone out and you've you know you, you bought the heroin, right? So, how does that relate to something that is going on today? This afternoon, Joe Biden already on a high for um, for trading the basketball players we talked about before for the merchant of death. He's going to be having a press conference this afternoon where he announces that $36 billion in taxpayer money is going to go to bail out the central state's pension fund. And um, this, the central state pension fund is essentially, it's the Teamsters. And uh, this money, what's happened is, in the next couple years, this fund is essentially going to be bankrupt. So by taking all this public money and by sending it to the central state's pension fund, what they guarantee is not that all these different workers, it's not that their pension benefits aren't going to be cut, but it guarantees that they're not going to be cut by more than 50%. So otherwise, if the pension fund becomes insolvent, well, then they have nothing. 
So this, a lot of workers aren't going to be thrilled with this, but at least it guarantees that they are going to get something. So now, before you send me the text and say, well, Jeff, what, what's wrong with that? We, we bail out banks. We bail out all these different things. It is not, at least in my opinion, the problem is not that we are taking this money and we are using it to try to bail out this pension fund. Because, again, you've got you know tens of thousands of workers. I'm looking at the list here. Um, 40,000 workers in Michigan, 39,000 in Ohio, 27,800 in Missouri, 25,000 in Illinois, 22,000 in Wisconsin. So it's not that you... It's not so much that, hey, we're going to try to preserve at least some of the benefits for this. The problem is the central state's pension fund has been one of the most mismanaged pension funds in the country. They've made risky investment after risky investment, and it hasn't worked out. The problem with the central state's pension fund, for example, wasn't that they didn't have enough money that had been contributed by the union members and things like that. It was that the pension, the people that ran it, did an absolutely crummy job and have essentially run it into the ground. Here is my issue with what's going on. Just giving these people money and saying, okay, here, we're, we're going to provide this infusion of cash without putting any significant restrictions on what they do with the cash and how they make investments moving forward guarantees you that you're going to be in the same situation in the next couple of years. When we bailed out the banks back when you had the financial crisis in 2008, and I understand there's some people who still have all sorts of heartache about that, we put in all sorts of new rules. Try getting a line of credit now. For those of you who remember what it was like when you got a, a line of credit, for example, um, years and years ago, used to be if you had a relationship with a banker, you'd call them up and you'd say, hey, you know, Suzanne, I, I'd like to, I'd like an extra $10,000. Can you raise my line of credit $10,000? And she'd say, well, sure, Jeff, you know, you've been a customer. You've had this line of credit for years. No problem. And it would be done in 24 hours. Now... Now it's completely different. You have all these different rules. They say, well, Jeff, I know you've been a customer for the last 15 or 20 years, and I know you've never defaulted on a loan, and I know how much money you have, but we need to see your tax records for the last four years, and we need this, and we need a financial statement. We need a statement from your employer. There's all these different rules and regulations that were put into effect in large part because, again, of what happened in 2008. They were put into effect to make sure that banks – who engaged in reckless or overly risky sorts of investments and things like that didn't get to do it again. And my issue here is, where are the restrictions? I mean, just to give the same people that ran these pension programs into the ground, just to give them an infusion of money without also saying, hey, we, we, you've got to change your ways because we can't have this happen again. That's the problem. It's not that it's not that we're taking taxpayer money and bailing these out because I appreciate it. You've got these union workers who relied on the pensions under the best case scenario. The pension payments are going to be well, well below what they thought they had. But at least this guarantees them something. I'm not complaining about that. I am complaining about just giving money to the people that mismanaged it in the first place. And then are we going to be surprised when three or four years from now we're back in the same situation? 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. I'm not against the bailout. 
I'm against the bailout with no strings. We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, look, I, I, again, I want to be real clear here. You, you cannot allow the central state's pension fund, which is, I believe it's the, the largest union pension fund around. That's the Teamsters. I, I, you, you, you can't allow it to go belly up. And, and that's exactly what's going to happen in the next couple of years unless there is a massive infusion of cash. So that's not my objection. And, and the union workers, they're still getting screwed over because the, the, the pension payments that they're going to get, even with this infusion of cash, is probably going to be about half of what it is that they expected that they were going to get. So I'm not against this. You, you, you have to do those bailouts. My beef is that you're giving the money to the same people who created the problem in the first place without all sorts of restrictions. And I understand it's, it's, it's complicated. I understand, you know, for years, one of the things that's been going on is the fact that there's been a greater outflow, more people um, taking money out than people putting it in. So I understand that. But the investments they've made, you know, the, these money managers, the people who ran this these outfits and made these investments, well – if if what they did was not criminal, it, it probably should have been. So the question becomes, do you just give them all this money without putting restrictions? And if you don't put restrictions, what's going to happen in the future? Dwayne in Trevor. Dwayne, you're on WTMJ. Dwayne. Okay, we're not able to take phone calls. So um, we'll get our engineers working on this and figure out why we can't bring up calls. 855-616-1620. Um, Jeff, this is the problem when you have a soft president. He's making deals to resolve the quick fix without looking at long-term issues. Well, look, this has been going on for a couple of years, and I don't, I don't want to turn this into a, a dump on Biden thing because I, I think he's doing what you have to do. I think you're, he's doing what you have to do, and you've got this money that was put aside from the Recovery Act. And, and yes, we have done bailouts. We've done economic stimulus programs, and I, I think does this benefit union members, and does Joe Biden politically want to portray himself as I'm, I'm the union friend? That's 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 all outstanding. That That's fine. That's good. My only beef is I don't want to see us back in this situation three or four years from now. And, you know, I, I, I was pulling up some of the numbers on this. Okay, uh what, what was happening is, I mean, central states, and it's, it's really a cautionary tale for lots and lots of people. S- the central states pension fund was going through a period of time back, you know, 1990s, early 2000s, where they had a, a decades-long problem of benefit payments, um, the outflows, were greater than the pension contributions. So that was that was the problem. So what they did is the professional money manager said, well, we've got to reverse this. So what we're going to do is we're going to start making big bets on risky stocks and non-traditional investments. We're, we're going to go to try to chase this because we, we need to generate more money. So it's kind of like going to the casino in Las Vegas and saying, okay, I've just lost $1,000. Well, I can't go home losing $1,000. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the high roller room, and I'm going to start playing the slot machines, and I'm going to put another $3,000 in. What could go wrong with that? So they started making all these big bets on stocks and non-traditional investments for about a three-year period between 2005 and 2008. And we all know what happened in 2008 where you had the economic crisis and the stock market tanked the experiment blew up and what happened is central states 
had a 42% drop in assets, 42%, and a loss of about $11 billion in seed capital in just 15 months between early 2000, between 2008 and 2009. And so you, you end up in a situation where you are now in the, this hole that you're never going to be able to fully dig out of. So again, once again, there's all sorts of issues that are going on here, and I'm not against the bailout. I, I think you got to stand up for the union workers and make sure that they get something out of it. I'm just saying that moving forward to give them money without putting all sorts of restrictions on what they do with the money in the future Make sure that there's some sort of regulation and some sort of ongoing review of how that money is invested to make sure that you don't have a repeat of what happened a decade ago that at least led largely to the problems you have. Now, there's still going to be all sorts of problems because nothing's changed. You still have a lot more outflows than you have inflows. And ultimately, that's not a sustainable sort of situation. So you're still always going to have those problems. But don't you need to put regulations in to make sure that you manage and you watch where this money is going and the type of things that it is being invested in. Is that too much to expect? And again, when we had the bailouts of the banks and all those things, there was all sorts of additional regulations which were added to this in order to make things better. As rates and inflation still rise, how will the markets react? How much will a recession impact employment and earnings? Join our very own Steve Scafidi and Annex Wealth Management's President and CEO, Dave Spano, as they walk through expectations for the new year in a virtual webinar that is going to be starting, well, in just a few minutes. Inflation, bull markets, bear markets. Have all your 2023 financial questions answered on our virtual webinar presented by Annex Wealth Management. Again, that starts in just a couple minutes. Uh, if you've ever... And look, I, there, there is this mythical place in the West called Las Vegas where you can go and they have hotels and they have places that you can put wagers on various things that are going to occur and they have wonderful shows. And one of the performers, if you ever had a chance to go to Vegas over the course of the last, I don't know, decade or so, um, one of the performers that did a, a long-term residency there was Celine Dion, uh, the Canadian singer, who's just, if you ever had a chance to see Celine Dion in concert, just absolutely just spectacular. The woman has just an amazing, amazing voice. She has been battling health problems over the last several years. She's canceled a lot of her shows. Um, she just announced yesterday um, that she has been diagnosed with a rare and incurable neurological condition known as stiff person syndrome, which is causing her to cancel and or postpone lots of shows from her upcoming tour. She's only 54 years old, and she's been dealing with health issues. They haven't been able to figure out what what was going on she says that she's been having like all the these spasms which make it difficult for her to walk don't allow her to use her vert, vo- vocal cords to sing the way she's used to and, and now apparently they have diagnosed this is this s it's called sps stiff person syndrome a neuro- neurological and anti-immune disorder that causes muscles to stiffen progressively, causing painful and debilitating spasms. In more extreme forms, it prevents people from walking or going about their daily lives. Loud noises can trigger the spasms. It's not curable. You can manage it through medication. Um, it affects men more than women. It's it's literally a one-in-a-million disease, but it, it's... At least at this point in time, you wonder whether she's ever going to perform again. When we come back, well, the restaurant decided not to serve them. I'll tell you why, and we'll discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue. 
It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. We believe we've got our problems with the phone lines fixed. We will see. All right, I've been waiting all day to discuss this story with you. Now, the interesting backdrop about this is the Supreme Court, of course, heard arguments. Was it earlier this week or late last week? It all kind of runs together about a a web designer in Colorado who does not want to be forced to do web designs for gay weddings. And it's not that she doesn't want to work with gay people. It's just that she says, hey, creating these web designs, that's this is a matter. Uh, it, it, I do not believe in same-sex marriage. That's what my religion teaches me. And so it's not that I don't want to provide services to gay couples or gay individuals. I'd be glad to do that. But when it comes to weddings, I think I should have a right to say no. And the Supreme Court is trying to figure out whether or not she has a free speech right to not offer individual services like that based on her religious beliefs. And the arguments that were made was, well, this is different than because this involves something creative. You know, it's different than simply, I don't know, somebody who wants a hotel room or somebody who wants to eat at a lunch counter, because I I think Everybody agrees, or at least should agree, I would hope, that you shouldn't be able to say, okay, just because of your sexual orientation or because of your race or because of your religious beliefs, we're not going to serve you in a restaurant. I mean, can you imagine if you had, let's say you have a, a diner in downtown Milwaukee and you decide, I, I don't I don't like Jewish people, so I'm not going to serve Jewish people. Would anybody think that that would be appropriate? And if you would think that would be appropriate, my question would be, what's the matter with you? Anyhow, that brings me to a story that is getting a lot of attention. It is out of Richmond, Virginia, and it involves a restaurant known as Metzger Bar and Butchery. All right. So apparently what had happened is a group that's uh, called the Family Foundation had made arrangements and reservations to host a dessert reception for its members and supporters on November 30th. So they, they had booked they had booked the room. They were going to have the event there. Okay, so that that's that's the deal. The Family Foundation is based in Richmond, and it advocates for advocates for policies based on biblical principles. It's lobbied against same-sex marriage. It's lobbied against abortion rights. Okay, so it is it's a conservative group with religious underpinnings. So they're they're having an event. They book the room at this restaurant. They pay the deposit. They do all that. About an hour and a half before the reception was supposed to start, the president of the group gets a phone call from one of the restaurant's owners canceling the event. We're canceling the event tonight. Now, why are they canceling it? Are they canceling it because, I don't know, there's been a water main break and they don't have water? No, no, no. Are they canceling it because the power is out, there's been an electrical problem and they can't be open? No, 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 they're not doing that. The owner says, as our vice president of operations explained, guests would be arriving at the restaurant shortly. Um, They understand that, but they say, here's what happened. One of our employees at the restaurant looked up the organization. Hey, what what is the, the family foundation? So they went on the Internet and they found, oh, you know, this is a group that doesn't believe in same-sex marriage. This is a group that uh, doesn't believe in women's abortion rights. And so our staff 
decides that we we don't want to serve them. They put up, and this is the statement, this is what they put up on Instagram. Metzger Bar and Butchery has always prided itself on being an inclusive environment for people to dine in. In eight years of service, we have very rarely refused to service anyone who wished to dine with us. Recently, we refused service to a group that had booked an event for us after the owners of Metzger found out it was a group of donors to a political organization that seeks to deprive women and LGBTQ persons of their basic human rights in Virginia. We have always refused service to anyone for making our staff uncomfortable or unsafe, and this was the driving force behind our decision. Many of our staff are women and or members of the LGBTQ community. All our staff are people with rights who deserve dignity and a safe work environment. We respect our staff's established rights as humans and strive to create a work environment where they can do their jobs with dignity, comfort, and safety. So they make no bones about it. We found out that this was a conservative religious group, and we decided we were not going to serve them because our staff and the owners presumably don't agree with some of their positions, their religious positions and their positions on issues. Is this any different than refusing to serve someone because of their color, their race? Is it any different than refusing to serve, I don't know, against someone because of of their religion? All right, we're not going to serve you because you're Jewish. We're not going to serve you because you're Muslim. All right, is there any way in the world that what this restaurant did should be allowed? 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. What do you think? We discuss in just a minute, and I do believe our phone lines are working. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Um, I hear, I mean, this, this is, if you're just tuning in, here, here's the deal. A, a group, and it, it's a religious group, uh, that, that lobbies for political causes, but it's based on religious underpinnings. They book, they book an event at this restaurant, gets canceled an hour and a half before the event because one of the employees at the restaurant goes on a website and says, hey, this is this conservative religious group, and they don't believe in abortion rights, and they don't believe in gay weddings. Well, the restaurant says, hey, we're, we're not, we don't want you here because of your beliefs. Um, and that includes their various religious beliefs. So should you be able to refuse service in a situation like this? And is this any different than, again, refusing service because of somebody's race, refusing service because somebody, I, I don't know, again, the religion. I, I don't want to serve Muslims. I don't want to serve Jews. Um, should you be able to do that? Is this the same? Or it's their restaurant. Should they be able to do whatever they want? John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ. Hey, buddy. No, um, I think that they ought to be out of business. They're not in business um, to pick and choose uh, a person's religions or what have you. You know, I think that's that's wrong. You know, I want to be served no matter who I am. I want to be served. I'm coming in respectful and paying my money. And um, and and I think when they turn you down, I think they ought to go to the, to the, to the board of uh, zoning and have that place closed. Mm-hmm. How about let me let me switch gears. What if this was instead of a a, a group, um, a, a, what I'm labeling as a religious group? What if this was the Nazi Party? If somebody called up and said, "Hey, we're the Nazi Party of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, we we want to book a room for a rally. Would they have to accept that?" 
they're in business. They're in business to accept whoever. I mean, that's not their business, what the people are in. Okay. I mean, you know, um, they, they got a room rented, and hey, you go to your room, and, and that's where you are. They're not going to come out and make anybody else be, believe what they believe. They got their own people coming there, and they need to just serve them people, you know. And they, I mean, it's only one time, you know. Okay. Well, thanks for calling, John. See, I, I, I raised this question because I, I guess I, I disagree with you. I, I think, you know, business owners have the right to refuse service. You know, it always used to be no shoes, no shirt, no service. I, I think business owners have the right to refuse service for a variety of reasons. But the question becomes here, what, what was, was this a reasonable reason? And I, I mean, I think what the, what the restaurant's trying to say was well, this, this is a political group. You know, we, we, and presumably, I don't know if they wouldn't serve, you know, Republicans or whatever this was a political group well it's not really a political group it's 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 a group with religious it, do they do politics yes but it's based on their different religious beliefs so i think that makes it different than say the nazi party but uh, be real careful here and this is the text i'm getting from all my listeners on the left who are saying well of course they should be able to do this well okay does that then mean that if you have, I don't know, a political action committee that exists to lobby for, for gay rights, for example, would that be the flip side of that? Could you say as a restaurant, nope, we're, we're not going to, you're not welcome here because you're a political group. You're going to do a fundraiser for same sex marriage, although that issue's gone off the table or, or whatever. Or, you know, you're a pro abortion group. We're not going to take your money. We're not going to allow you to come in. All right. Is this, is that reasonable? Should you be able to do that? Um, or is this just a case of the shoe being on the other foot? 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Let's talk to Terry on the south side. Hi, Terry. Hey, how you doing? Good. What do you think? All right, so a couple points real quick. This, this is my take on this, okay? Like I told you, producer. Sure. I am a, I'm a Christian, and... In Christianity, there are certain things that are considered sins. Now, if someone who, let's say, is indulgent in some of those things or involved in those things, and maybe I don't believe in those things, the, the Bible says to love your neighbor. So if one of those people came to me and asked me to do something for them, I would do it because I'm going to treat them fair and love them as my neighbor. Mm-hmm. That is between them and whatever God they may believe in to judge them. It is not for us to judge them. And so it is discrimination, and, and, and you can't use religion as an excuse to treat people differently because you don't agree with them. Again, it's simple. It's love your neighbor. And as Americans, we all agree that to, to accept people that are different than us. America is a melting pot, people of different colors, people of different religions, people—I mean, people are tall, short, yeah. you know, whatever— and you can't, oh, well, this is my religion, because if you can do that, then you can discriminate. You can just make up a religion and start discriminating people, you know, mm-hmm. we can, and we can't have that. Terry, th- thanks for calling. No, I, mean, I, I, I mean, it is discrimination. There, there's no doubt about it. They are discriminating against this group. Now, not all discrimination is is illegal. I mean, you can refuse service. You can refuse service to people for a variety of reasons, as long as it's not an, an illegal reason. But, I mean, let's... Let's let's put this out in a different context. Let's say you've got you've, you've got a business owner who says, "All right, um, I, I think Democrats are ruining this world, so I am not going to sell." Let's say you live in a state where you have 
party registration. That's not Wisconsin. If you have to register as a Republican or a Democrat and you say, I, I just I am not going to serve anybody. I'm not going to sell stuff to anybody who can't prove that they are a registered Republican or a registered Democrat. Should they be able to do that? I mean, should you be able to discriminate against people and withhold services simply because of their political beliefs? Now, I, I think this is more complicated than that because I think this is discriminating against them because of their religious beliefs as, as well. But but the political beliefs, should you just be able to say, I'm going to refuse service because I don't agree with your particular brand of politics? Would, would that now you can argue that that would be awful business, but. Beyond that, should it be legal to do that? And what, what if you do? I mean, you end up in a let, let's say that that's the that's the argument and you say, OK, well, I'm going to open up a lunch counter and I am only going to serve Republicans. That's going to be what this is. And if that means that all sorts of persons of color who identify and the registered Democrats come in, should I be able to refuse them service because they're registered Democrats? Let's talk to Vicki in Oconomowoc. Vicki, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Vicki. Well, you know, my hi. Um, as I was talking to the person that took my call, um, well, first of all, I think they should be served. Um, if if you have a group coming in that where there's a, a, a connotation of an uproar being caused or something, then no, you know, you don't. That's the reason, and that's a good reason. But just you know, um, because you're Catholic or you're gay or you're black or you're white, I don't think mm-hmm. it's a good reason. And you have people coming in all the time who you don't know what they are, but you serve them. Well, yeah, that's an in- that, that's an interesting question. You know, Vicki, that's an interesting point. So what if, instead of the group, what if there's a couple that's sitting there having dinner, or, or two couples, you know, that made of reservations, they're having dinner, and they're having a conversation, and the waiter or waitress overhears them saying, I don't support gay marriage, or, you know, I don't support, you know, what, what, I don't support same-sex marriage, or, you know, I'm, I can't believe that, you know, we, we've, I can't believe that you have these people who believe that, that are pro-abortion. Would the restaurant be entitled to toss those people out? Oh, I, I overheard them saying that they don't believe in gay marriage. I happen to be gay. Boom, I feel threatened. Boom, they're gone. Uh, is, is that really, should people be able to do that? Can you imagine if you didn't have, like, all the waiters and waitresses or bartenders eavesdropping on people's conversation to determine whether or not those people and their thoughts corresponded to, you know, what your thoughts were. I mean, where does it end? Exactly. And, you know, somebody's going to be uncomfortable. I mean, you have a group of your staff. Um, I'm sure one of them will be uncomfortable with something or other. Well, um, yeah, maybe. No, where I mean, do you draw the line? Yeah, right. Thank, thanks for calling. I mean, yeah, it is. Where where do you draw the line? So if if I'm sitting at dinner and I'm having a conversation and we're talking about you know, politics and somebody, you know, and, and, and part of and politics overlies on, on social issues and things like that. And I, I'm saying, hey, I can't believe that we're doing all these student loan buyouts. And so you have somebody else who's the, the waiter or waitress, the server is like, well, I, I, I'm just I think this is the greatest thing in the world. Should they be able to refuse service on, on that? Now, I do think, you know, I threw out that Nazi, the Nazi party analogy earlier on. It, it's it's one thing 
if you as the restaurant owner are concerned that the group is going to cause I mean, issues. Okay, I don't want the Nazi party here because it's going to create nothing but issues and it's going to turn off all our other customers and we're going to have protests and we might have violence, so I'm going to say no up front. But that's not what this was. This was, hey, an hour beforehand, you have some employee who checks their website and says, oh, my gosh, these people don't – they have opinions that are different than mine. I and, and many of my coworkers, we shouldn't have to serve them. Well, I mean – First of all, whether it's illegal or not, it's, in my opinion, it is completely and totally wrong. And for everybody who is arguing that the website designer should be required to do, to, to do the websites for like gay people and things like that, well, okay, fine. Then how can you justify saying, okay, if you don't agree with this particular attitude, you, you don't have a right to have food to eat at this particular restaurant? Just saying. One of our texters says, Jeff, do doctors get to pick and choose who they help? So, you know, would you have a doctor who says, well, no, I'm not going to operate on you. I'm not going to treat you because, I don't know, you support same-sex marriage or you oppose same-sex marriage. But, you know, do, do doctors get to do that? And if if not, okay, what, why do other people get to do that? I'm just... I'm throwing that question out there, especially for, you know, everybody who talks about this stuff on, on the other side. This is the reverse of that. Should the restaurant be able to do it? A number of business owners saying, you know, it's just regardless of whether they can do it or not, you know, the, when it comes to business, there's one color and that is green. And why would you alienate a huge chunk of your potential customer base, which is, of course, a very good question. So, Mike, I was feeling old this morning. You were sitting next to me. Um, we were upstairs. We were both working and, and our Internet, the, the office Internet went down mm-hmm. and just I mean, everybody, first of all, everybody like looks at their own computer and then everybody looks at the computer of the person next to them. And then you notice there's a buzz throughout the entire office with mm-hmm. the Internet down. And then next thing I know, I see all these people. Everybody's just getting up and walking with time to go get coffee or, or whatever. What what did we do? And I remember, believe it or not, I am old enough to remember a time before Al Gore invented the Internet that. That we, you know, <laughs> offices actually operated, you know, without being able to access the World Wide Web. I cannot answer that one because I was not in the working uh, world at that time as of yet. I grew up in the era of floppy disk, right. which I think we had internet, but we were using a, yeah. a like Encarta or whatever it was yeah. very early. But I don't know. And like if we really honestly had a, a day wide outage, I don't know what we it, would do. Uh, it, it, it really does show how dependent we are. I mean, when I, my first real job after I, I went through college, I had, I had like nine months before I went to law school. And so, I, I mean, I worked for an insurance company here in Milwaukee. And, and this was before the Internet. And, you you know, you, you actually had files. And you'd have to go and you'd pull out the files. And you'd work on this. And you'd actually dictate letters. I mean, it was all that. None, none of this stuff was computerized. And somehow we were able to get through it. Now a 20-minute outage. And literally everybody, <laughs> it was kind of funny. People just like walking around. What, what, what do I do? Because with the exception of a couple dinosaurs like me who like print out the stuff that I use for the show, nobody, there's no paper around here. No, I don't even know. We couldn't even print because our printers are connected to our computers via Wi-Fi. Right. So no, there. I, I was thinking the same thing. Like, okay, well, how can I get physical copies of something? Can't even do that because I'm reliant on the uh, the Wi-Fi. So it, it, yeah. you know, I mean, it really. And, and the other, I guess, the, the larger point about this is we're all so dependent on this nowadays that if there ever was. A significant sort of 
slash terrorist attack, don't mean to push that, or some major sort of outage where the, the power was out for days and days and days. You wonder you wonder how businesses could operate. You wonder how, I mean, Hurricane Ian hit, you know, South Florida, and, and there, was, there was no Internet, there was no power for a week. You wonder how businesses could operate, and the answer is I guess they can't. No, we'll all be paralyzed. We can live through a food shortage, natural gas shortage. COVID, you know, COVID. pandemic, yeah. Internet goes down for three days, we're... We're SOL, man. We're out. Internet goes down for 20 <laughs> minutes. I mean, that's it. You know, think about it at home. You're on the Internet. All of a sudden, it goes down for 20 minutes. It's yeah, we like, were just oh my... giving up at that point. Uh, right. <laughs> that's it. So uh, I, we, we went through it together. When we come back, who is that masked man? Stick around. It was predicted that this was going to be a bad flu season, in part because last year with, with COVID and the, the shutdowns and things like that, last year the flu really was pretty much of a non-issue, not exclusively, but pretty much of a non-issue because people were concerned about COVID and things of the like. This year, of course, we've got the COVID vaccines, we've got the flu vaccine, and yet one of the things you're seeing is even with the, the vaccines that are there, we are seeing an explosion in the number of, of cases. And it's it's COVID, it's the flu, and for kids, it's this thing they call RSV, which is respiratory syntial virus, a cause of respiratory illness. Normally, it manifests itself like a cold, but sometimes it infects lungs and breathing passages, and it can cause breathing problems in infants and young children. So, it, so you've got RSV that's out there for kids, you've got flu, and you've got COVID. And, and they're making a resurgence. Now, we're not looking at COVID at the levels like it was two years ago, and we're cer- certainly not looking at the outcomes uh, as far as deaths and things like that. But nevertheless, people do die from COVID. People do die from the flu. It, it hasn't disappeared, and it's not going to. I bring this up because a number of communities around the, the country are considering reinstituting indoor mask bans. Uh, let's see. I've got I'm looking at a story in the L.A. Times from this morning. Will you mask up again? A January indoor mandate looms for L.A. County if the COVID-19 wave worsens. And it goes on to talk about how, while there, it's nowhere near as bad as it was like two years ago, what they're seeing is that the number of hospitalizations because of COVID is up. And once it hits, I think their trigger is like 10 percent. That, that's, that's what triggers this. If 10 percent of all staffed inpatient hospital beds are filled with coronavirus, so that's patients. You know, that's one. And there's a couple other criteria that, that are out there. But they're saying, hey, it's looking like. You know, we're going to hit that as, as we move into, like, the flu season, as we go, as COVID continues to go. It looks like we're going to hit the, these these mask mandates. Plus, you've got this other stuff going on. You've got the flu that's out there. You've got RSVP, R, this RSV virus, all these different things that are out there. And they're seriously talking about reinstituting the indoor mask mandate. Now, one of the hang-ups they have, and I say hang-ups, is this concern that even if they try to implement this, there's just going to be a huge backlash and nobody is going to follow it. Nobody's going to obey it, um, that there will be mass resistance. And one of the reasons that they're looking at that is the fact that 
Very, very few people nowadays voluntarily wear masks. I've just, in the last week or so, I mean, I've been out in public on a number of different occasions. I won't say that when, for example, I go into the grocery store, or I'll give you an example. A couple nights ago, I was at a very, very crowded bar slash restaurant with with my buddy. The, The place was absolutely packed. There was nobody wearing any masks. I mean, nobody nobody was wearing masks, and there wasn't any requirement that you do, but there was no, you, you could have done it if you wanted, and, and nobody was, was wearing masks. I think about the last time I came back on an airplane a few weeks ago when we were coming back from Florida. I don't want to say nobody was wearing a mask, but if, if on a full flight, if, if there were five people wearing masks, that was a lot. I don't even think there were necessarily that many people. So on the one hand, You've got these public health officials saying, hey, we've got this coming back again. Maybe it's time for more people to mask up. And you've got the general public that's apparently at least largely at the point of saying, no, thank you. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line, either voluntarily or by government order. Are you ready to put the mask back on? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Um, if you're just tuning in, story in the L.A. Times, the, the number of COVID cases are, are up. N- nothing like they were two years ago, but but they're up. And between that and flu cases and this kids uh, virus, the RSV thing, um, L.A. County is seriously considering reinstituting their indoor mask requirement. And one of the concerns they have is that nobody's going to pay any attention to it. I, I'm, I'm out in public a lot. Now, we don't have indoor mask requirements around here, but you know people could still wear masks as they choose. And I see... My my sense is people are over this. I see very, very few people voluntarily wearing masks. And the ones that that are wearing the masks uh, tend to be maybe older people, or I assume maybe it's people with, you know, particular health issues that are there. But for the general public, you know, where are we on mask mandates? Let's start with Jack in Caledonia. Hi, Jack. Hey, how are you doing, Jack? Good. Yeah, this is just a topic that, you know, should have been stopped two years ago when they were mandating masks. There's not one scientific study that shows a mask will prevent an airborne virus from spreading. Also, N95 masks, I paint. On the side of the box, it states the mask is not designed to stop fumes, you know, for painting, or airborne viruses, okay? It says it right on the side of the box. And it's, I mean, it's just like people are listening to the Dr. Fauci's of the world, and they don't have any peer-reviewed studies that say masks work. There are about 120 or so peer-reviewed studies that say they don't work, okay? Yeah, well, you, they do work, I should say. You know, Jack, well, thanks, Jack. Well, I mean, I think... I, I don't. This is kind of a slippery slope. I mean, I'm looking at a story in the New York Times, and it's citing a number of studies that suggest that, you know, wearing a mask can help. I mean, it's not an, an absolute golden bullet, and to me, it, it makes sense. I mean, it just will it prevent you know airborne stuff from getting in or out? No, but it, again, it, to me, it makes sense that it helps a, a bit. I do agree. I mean, part of the problem is even back when we had these mask mandates, I'd sit around, I'd look at the like the masks that people were wearing or, you know, they've got it pulled down over their nose, which it's sort of why bother doing that. But I I do think, I mean, bigger picture, I I think, you know, we can have a debate about how effective masks are. And matter of fact, the story in The New York Times suggests that, you know, the the conventional wisdom was, well, you wear a mask 
um, to protect other people from yourself if you're infected, um, but they don't really help you from other people who are. And th- this, the story in the New York Times says, no, actually, a lot of people are saying you do get some protection from wearing a mask because it, it does block some of the airborne particles. But again, it's not this golden bullet that's out there. At the same time, though, I think the, the, the simple reality is, especially now that we have vaccines, I think for most people, that if, if you're vaccinated, and, you know, in my case, I mean, I've, I've had all the different booster shots. I've had the flu shot. Do, do I do I think do I think that wearing a mask is going to give me that added level of protection on top of that? I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't know um, if if they mandate it. Will I wear one? Yes. But will I wear one voluntarily under most circumstances? Probably not. I think that's where most people are. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Ricky on the south side. Hi, Ricky. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? Um, I guess I'm kind of conflicted. Um, I'll start with this. I'm actually home <laughs> for okay. the week with COVID. Right. Um, I work in a healthcare setting. Um, mm-hmm. Historically, from the very beginning of this, uh, the pandemic and everything, I was very pro-mask just because of the environment that I was in. And, uh, you know, I'll come out of the gates and say I identify as a liberal also. I know that plays into it for sure. Um, But in recent months, you know, leading into the the cold and flu season in the fall, I remember hearing a particular story, and I can't cite what radio source it was. It was probably NPR, if I'm being honest. Um, but I was listening to a handful of health uh, experts, I guess, or doctors talking about how it may have been the wrong choice to do the distancing and all of the mask mandates that we have had because they were expecting to see this and we're seeing it now. Mm-hmm. Um, harsher uh, flu symptoms, people are dealing with it longer, it's leading yeah. to different infections and walking pneumonia and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I'm conflicted. I, of like you, if it's mandated, of course, I'm going to wear it. Right. Am I going to do it on my own accord? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they and say that science is true until you discover more, you learn more about it. I think we're just continuing to discover more. Yeah. And now yeah. we're just in this weird spot of I don't know. Yeah. No, thanks. I think, Ricky, I think a lot of people are like that. I think now, you know, you started off the conversation by saying you work in the healthcare field. I, I do think that whether it's COVID or the flu or, or whatever, I do think that there are going to be certain places and certain occupations where this becomes kind of like the new normal. And, and again, maybe it's going to be the hospital setting, uh, certainly perhaps in, in a nursing home setting. If you've got, you know, elderly parents or grandparents or whatever, you know, people who are particularly vulnerable, not just to COVID, but to the, the flu and, and things like that. I, I think, you know, that, that to me is kind of a, a different sort of calculation. And I do think one of the other calculations for all of us is if, if you don't feel well, just don't go out. You know, that's, and I mean, I think that's this idea that, gee, I'm running an 103 fever, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to try to power through this. Well, you're not helping anybody. And I think at least at most, at most workplaces, if you've got the 102 fever, and you've got the symptoms of the flu or whatever, be it COVID or not. I don't think most employers wants to, um, you know, want want you coming in under those circumstances. Uh, Susie in Wauwatosa. Susie, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Susie. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure we're ready to go back to a mandate. I don't think that will ever happen again. But <clears throat> I, you know, and I 
appreciate the your last caller, one of the last callers that was talking about reading the side of the box and how they absolutely don't, you know, it says it doesn't prevent anything. But I let's let's be real. The last couple of years, we've had very few cases of the flu. We've had very few cases of the common cold. And that, I think, in large part is due to people were masking up a lot more. And now we're easing off of that. I think people, you know, are more, you know, comfortable with not masking up as much as we were. Um, but like today, I helped out at a local grade school. And, um, you know, there's a lot of sickness going on in the schools. I wore a mask. I had no problem doing that. I was probably one of the few, the only. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I, I don't want to get sick before the holidays, even with the common cold. So if there's something I can do, and it's on me, you know, it's my preference. Mm-hmm. I think people have to decide to, you know, protect themselves forever. Is it going to prevent every little thing? Probably not, but will it help? I think probably a little bit, yeah. Do you think it's? Do you think the drop in, in flu cases, for example, do you think it's because of masking or... Could it be because we, we were shut down for huge chunks of time? You know, we, we weren't we weren't going out. We weren't interacting in groups. Could that have been a factor, too? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it can. You know, obviously, you know, the less their people are together in smaller, confined spaces, yeah. I think the less likely you're you're going to spread either even the common cold, you know, which, you know, right. I will knock on every piece of wood around me. I, I hadn't had. Uh, for two over two years, and yeah. I, I worked in the school. I just recently retired, and you know I got a, a, a cold mm-hmm. couple times a year. It just is, you know, I, with well, all the. I, well, I, I always tell the story yeah. when, when the, the only times I used to get colds was when I would fly on airplanes because inevitably there would be somebody sitting behind me or to the side of me or whatever who's coughing up a lung or sneezing or whatever, and you yeah. or, is there and some you know kid what, who's yeah. doing it? You go, hey, cover your mouth, kid. You know. Right. And I think that will be one place. I know that they, there was a, a thought that, oh, my gosh, the air, the way that they're purifying it, the air is so clean on place. I'm going to leave it the way it is. I, that'll probably be one place that I will always uh-huh. choose to wear a mask because it's so confined. And it, there are so many people in that small area. Right. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I don't no. know that I'd want to do it for an eight-hour flight all the, the whole way. I don't know, but... I'm just saying I think that'll be one place that I always choose to because, again, yeah. if it helps even a little bit. Thanks for call, Susie. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm, uh, I'm kind of curious. I'm, I've got a, I'm, uh, early January. I'm, uh, we're on a plane. Uh, we're jumping on a jet down to Florida. I'll be curious. I, I will be curious because that will really be kind of the height of the cold flu season. I'll be curious as to whether there's more people wearing masks on the plane then than when I came back from Florida in November. Jeff, I've been a nurse for 40 plus years. We have to be fit tested for the N95 masks to assure the proper fit seal at my hospital that I work in. Many people that wear masks simply do not wear them properly. Let me just say, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I I can't tell you, even during the the height of this, the mask mandates, you'd see these people and the masks were ill-fitting or they have them pulled down around their nose and it's like, okay, well, why, why bother? Um, many of the people that wear masks do not wear them properly. We all have to wear masks while at work. Don't know if or when that will ever stop. The big problem, though, is people outside of work who choose to wear masks don't wear them correctly. Look, I, I don't. There, there's no talk about reinstituting indoor mask mandates in Milwaukee or anything like that right now. I, I think you'd have a huge blowback, small p political. I don't think people are at that point, and I, I don't think you can necessarily go back. But I do think it's reasonable to say that, you know, as the cold and flu season 
you know, goes on and as COVID continues, I think, you know, more and more people are going to make that decision for themselves. And, and one way or the other, I, I think that's fine. And if you feel uncomfortable being out in large groups where you know that 80 or 85 percent of the people or 90 percent aren't going to be wearing masks, well, that that's a lifestyle choice that you end up making. I don't think we're ready to go back to mandates, though. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the next hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. That kicks off right after the top of the hour news. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, you know, we we have all these politicians talking about how violence prevention and we want to make this a safer place. Don't appear to be getting the the memo. I mean, this, this right now. According to the Milwaukee Police Department, their most their website, 203 homicides so far this year, 203 homicides. And that that's a lagging indicator. It's actually a little bit higher than that, I think, to give you an indication year to date last year. And last year was an all time record on homicides, 180. We're now at 203 all time record. And this is what, December 8th. So you've got another three weeks or so left before the end of the year. So who knows how high this will ultimately go as far as the non-fatal shootings um, last year, this time 827, this year 828. So we're we're. Up 20-some, 23 for homicides, and I think, again, there's been a couple since then that aren't counted, and we're at the same unacceptably high level of non-fatal shooting. And it's just, it's all over the city, and it's all different circumstances. Uh, 19-year-old, looking at a couple of the TV websites, 19-year-old Milwaukee man was shot and killed Wednesday afternoon, police said. The shooting happened just before 3 p.m. near 8th and Madison Street. Police are investigating what led to the shooting. They have not made any arrests. They are trying to determine who the shooter is. So you've got um, you've got that situation. Then you have the story. Let's see. Woman shot and killed in Milwaukee. Suspect in custody. Uh, let's see. Milwaukee police are investigating the deadly shooting of a woman Wednesday night. Happened near 9.45 p.m. near 19th Street and Wright Street. Police say a 34-year-old Milwaukee woman died at the scene 41-year-old Milwaukee man is in custody, so he's in custody. Then the story that's getting, again, a a lot of attention, this is not a homicide, it is a non-fatal shooting. Milwaukee police said a 7-year-old boy was hurt when shots were fired into a home near 91st and Silver Spring Wednesday night. The shooting happened around 8.45 p.m. The boy was taken to the hospital and is expected to survive. My understanding is the kid was in his bedroom. So he's in his bedroom when somebody drives by this house on 91st and Silver Spring and just opens up. And in this case, one of the bullets flies and hits the kid who's in his bedroom. What does it say about a city where you have on a Wednesday night at not a late hour, like before 9 o'clock at night, where you a 7-year-old can't sit in their bedroom without fear that bullets are going to go flying through the house. And this, by the way, is not the first time you've had, in the recent weeks, you, you've had, you know, drive-through shootings, drive-by shootings. Remember we had that story about a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago, it all kind of blurs, on, on Hampton Avenue, where they found 130, what was 130 or 139 bullet casings? I mean, somebody just pulled up to a house and just, it you know, turned it into like the the toll booth scene in The Godfather where Sonny Corleone gets killed. Just bullet after bullet after bullet. We're, we're not, in the city of Milwaukee nowadays, we're not just talking 
a, a shooting where you have somebody that gets in a fight with somebody else and somebody pulls out a gun and you have like a, a, a shot that is fired. We're, we're talking about gangland stuff on an almost nightly basis where, I, I mean, I don't know, you've got a beef with somebody. Or I don't know what the circumstances are, whether they're gang related or whatever, where you have people that pull up and just open up on these houses. You know, 100 shots, 120, 130 shots. It's I would say it is the wild, wild west, but I, like I say, that's, that is an insult to the wild, wild west. It was never, ever, ever that bad, and it's happening all over, and we're no closer to a solution now than we were a year or two ago, and the truth of the matter is it's, it's getting worse. So you've got the firearm violence that is going on, and in the aggravated sort of fashion here, we're just going to, like, shoot up people's houses, and more and more people are dying, and then, of course— You've got the carnage on the roadway. Our former sister uh, station, TMJ4, did a really interesting story about um, they, they looked at. We all talk. We talk a lot on this program about reckless driving and things like that. They looked at the various streets in Milwaukee, and they tried to determine what were the two most deadly streets in in Milwaukee County. And and I guess there's, there's lots of ways you can measure this. Could you measure it in just total automobile collisions that occurred? Could you measure it in um, a, a number of tickets given, whatever? But the, the criteria they decided to use is where have we had the most traffic deaths? And they said, okay, let's look. Let's look at 2000. Let's start just for the sake of argument. We'll start at 20, in 2017, and we'll run it, you know, through currently. Okay, so they'll look at this. And I, I'll give you the streets, and it's it's not a surprise. Since 2017, data shows 27 people have died in crashes along Fond du Lac Avenue, and 26 people have been killed on Capitol Drive, where our studios used to be. Now, I, I guess I do not find that to be traffic. Both of these streets have recorded twice as many traffic fatalities compared to the third and fourth deadliest streets, Appleton Avenue and Silver Spring Drive. And city leaders say speeding and street design are the two biggest factors. Um, now, as somebody who, uh, again, for 23, 24, 25 years, went to work on Capitol Drive, I can tell you that that's, that is not a surprise to me at all. As a matter of fact, I made a conscious decision for the last several years that the easiest way for me to get to work would have been to take the freeway, get off on Capitol Drive, and, and go east to our studios. No way in God's green earth I was going to do that. It just, it just wasn't, because whenever you drive on Capitol Drive, you realize you're taking your life into your own hands, whether it's people running red lights or people, what do they call it? They call it the Milwaukee slide, you know, in the, the parking lane, you know, passing you at, at 50 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone in the parking lane, all, all that sort of stuff blowing through red lights, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I just made the decision that I was not going to go to work that way. And so I went the long way and came through Esterbrook Park and ended up on Capitol Drive for about two blocks. But that's I, you, you learn if you drive that on a regular basis to avoid it like the plague because the amount of irresponsible, reckless driving, the number of people of my, my teammates, my colleagues over the years who have been involved in, nobody's been killed, but involved in like big time car collisions on that stretch of road on Capitol Drive, it just tells me I, I want absolutely no part of it. So the, the roads are, are dangerous and they're getting worse. And they're getting worse because of the speeding and the reckless driving. 
one of the things that they're starting to do and one of the plans to try to reduce this is what they're going to do is they're going to essentially they, they put in temporary what like bump out lanes and what those are apparently they're like these temporary elevated concrete will be used to extend the curbs at intersection corners to protect the parking lane while also shrinking the crossing distance for pedestrians. So what they want to do is they want to install some of these uh, uh, pinned-on bump-outs along stretches to make it more difficult for people to do the Milwaukee slide, you know, to to try to pass on the right. That's their idea, and that's what they're hoping is going to, you know, solve some of the problem. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. I, I I don't have any problem with trying to, you know, do things to adjust traffic flow <clears throat> or make it more difficult to drive like a maniac in, in the parking lanes. I, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. But at the end of the day, this doesn't seem to me to solve the problem unless and until we make a commitment in this community that we are going to flood these areas with police, that when you see people driving recklessly, we are going to pull them over. If they don't have driver's licenses or insurance, we're going to tow the cars away and not give them the cars back until they can prove that they're able to drive them. And if they run through red lights and behave in reckless fashions, what we're going to do is we're going to prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law, and we're not just going to give them a $25 ticket that they're going to ignore. We're going to consider putting them in jail. And if that means the legislature's got to come up with more penalties and more criminal penalties for reckless driving, I'm all, I'm all in favor of it. But all these other ideas, these mechanisms, let, let's put the bump out in. Okay, let's try to do stuff to kind of calm the flow of traffic. That's not going to change the, the 17-year-old driving the stolen car at 80 miles an hour. He's still going to or she is still going to be doing that regardless of whether you've got the bump outs there or not. The only solution to this is to recognize we've got a huge problem and we've got to get these people off the streets and take their cars away. Am I wrong? These numbers really are staggering. I mean, Capitol Drive, which is a major east-west thoroughfare, I guess nowadays if you're brave enough to do it, um, 26 fatalities since 2017. Fond du Lac Avenue, which is, again, a a major sort of, um, you know, southeast to northwest uh, road, 27 fatalities. Appleton Avenue, 13. Silver Spring, 13. That's in the last five years. But Capitol Drive and Fond du Lac, and anybody who has ever had to go up and down Capitol Drive, I mean, I'll testify to that from personal experience, understands that it's, you take your life in your own hands. And they're, they're talking about doing things like, oh, let's have some bump outs and things like that that'll try to calm traffic flow. Uh, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. I'm not against that. I, I'm not. But just like after we had the shooting on Water Street this summer and you have this big press conference and they say, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to start issuing curfew tickets to unattended minors who are out on the streets. And, of course, months later, nobody's doing that. They issue maybe a dozen, and that doesn't have any effect at all. My my point is I don't think this is going to have any effect, at least in a material way. And I'm not against it. Try whatever. But 
But the bottom line is when you've got that 16-year-old kid in the stolen car who's driving 80 miles an hour, okay, you can put in all the other stuff that makes it more difficult for them to pass in the right lane. They're still going to be doing that. The only real solution to get ourselves out of this problem is to start grabbing the people that are doing it, sending them to jail, do not pass go, and you know, whether it's a house of correction or whatever, taking their cars away, there's no reason why the rest of us, those of us who are driving with insurance, those of us who are driving with valid driver's licenses, those of us who are doing things like stopping at red lights and not blowing through stop signs and actually driving at the speed limit or close to the speed limit, there is no reason why any of us should be held hostage to that criminal element. And yes, I use the term criminal element that is out there putting all our lives at risk. Uh, let's talk to George in Illinois. George, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You just you just uh, repeated everything I told the gentleman ahead of you, or the my screener. Yep. Your call taker. Uh, the sheriff of Detroit had a big crime problem, and he instituted this broken window policy, where kid breaks the window, gets caught. Okay, you go to jail for a day. Yep. No big deal, but he'll tell his friends what happened. Yep. And over time, he has reduced the crime rate in Detroit miraculously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the judges need to uh, get their cotton testicles in, in line <laughs> and say, you broke the law. You damaged property. Yep. You're going to jail. Yeah, absolutely. And mommy and daddy are up. You can't do that. He's a kid. Well, he did something that he's not supposed to do, and the way you learn, put him down to some place for a day, a couple of hours even, but well, they'll find out that those bars stop yeah. you from doing that. Right, and then, George, thanks for the call, and then and, and then a progressive sort of thing. I mean, I, the, the way we treat people who drive without driver's licenses around here is absolutely capital C crazy. You know, the Common Council, just after much argument, the Fire and Police Commission, after much discussion, now said that, okay, well, you know, if you flee from the police and you don't have the car validly registered, um, and they, 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 you can tow the car. Well, okay, th- th- this is a no-brainer. I mean, we had to argue about this type of stuff, and, and we've had the story after story about the people who they're now suing to try to get injunctions against them because, hey, we've caught this person 31 times, they've had tickets, and they'd never have a driver's license, and they're, they're back out in these cars driving recklessly. How do we let this go on? I mean, it is just, I, I've said this before, you know, if you had a Martian that landed in Cathedral Square Park and, and, and looked at some of the ways we treat criminals around here, the Martians would leave shaking their heads, convinced that there's no intelligent life on Earth. I mean, you mean you can, you can do this? You can drive without a license, without insurance, and get caught speeding time after time after time, and you, and you don't go to jail, and they give you the car back? It's just flat-out nuts. And again, I, I appreciate the traffic calming stuff. I'm not against that if you think that that's going to be able to help. But the truth of the matter is, until you get that percentage of the people who are who just don't care about anything and who are, again, whether it's a stolen cars or just reckless driving or whatever or without, why, why do we let people drive without driver's licenses? I mean, seriously, why have a rule that says you have to have insurance if we don't enforce it? Why have a rule that if you have to have a driver's license if we don't enforce these things? Jeff, I think it's time to think outside the box. Why not have security codes to start and open cars instead of keys? 
keys. The criminals, the problem is they'll be back on the street in a few days. Jeff, I used to work at Luther Manor and take Hampton home going east. Hampton is Hampton is not that much better than, than the others as well. And I, I just... One of the things that breaks my heart about this is, I mean, I grew up in Glendale, and I, I, I Silver Spring, Hampton, Capitol, these were all streets that I used to drive on a regular basis when you were going from the North Shore and you wanted to go out to, I mean, Wauwatosa or whatever. Nowadays, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I think, I think long and hard before, gee, you know, how am I going to get home? Do I want to go across Silver Spring? Do I want to go across Hampton? I think long and hard about that. Capital Drive, no way. Just absolutely no way. Jeff, I used to work at Luther Manor, and I take Hampton uh, home going east. I've had people blowing through red lights and passing me on the right sidewalk. Never again. Just, I mean, never again. Again, um, no question about it. Jeff, adding the bump outs to Milwaukee streets and narrowing the streets in Milwaukee, county government, you know, calls traffic. Traffic calming does not work. I think it just makes it more dangerous for people who are trying to drive safely through Milwaukee. Narrowing the streets and putting in uh, bike lanes, thinking these reckless drivers are not going to drive carelessly through the bike lane is ridiculous. These traffic calming efforts are available. Um, you know, so... Again, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have a, a, a magic bullet for this. Other than, if you want to make the roads more safe, let's get the people who are driving recklessly off the streets. Jeff, I don't disagree with you, but how are we putting them in jail? There's no room. We're releasing people charged with serious felonies. Okay, I I, I understand that. So here's what you have to do as part of that. You have to say, we're going to make a commitment. We're going to make a commitment to enlarging the jail or building another jail, or we're going to build another prison. Oh, what do you mean another prison? You can't incarcerate yourself out of this problem. Nuts to that. Sure you can. I mean, yes, at some point in time. Look, I'm, I'll leave it to smarter people than me to figure out stuff that you can do to discourage people from stealing cars or driving 90 miles an hour or committing crimes. All I know is that once people start doing that, they have to be held accountable. Why are we not willing to do it? And my guess is if you had a referendum and you said, all right, here's what we're asking. You know, we want to increase the property tax or we want to increase the taxes a half a percent because we want to commit that to building and staffing a new prison to make it easier for judges to send people there. My guess is that referendum passes 75-25. That's just me. I want to revisit something we talked about uh, several weeks ago because there's a story about this in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Southwest Airlines is different than many, many airlines in that Southwest Airlines has open seating. What happens is you you are assigned a number. They have like A1 through 60 and B1 through 60 and C1 through 60. And depending on the cost of your ticket and whether you get early bird or whatever, that determines what group you are in. You do not have an assigned seat. So you get your ticket and your boarding thing is A35. So you you line up and you're, you know, theoretically the 35th person to, to get on the plane. They've got they, they, they allow people with disabilities and stuff to get on earlier and stuff. But you get the idea. It, it's open seating. And then you get there and you pick the, the seat you want. This is unlike most planes 
where you are assigned a seat. Now, some pl- places they will charge you for you know particular seats, or if you want to reserve a seat. But you know, you fly most airlines, and and you you know, there's not a rush to get on the plane because you're you know you're in A and B in row 35. You you've you've got those. Those are the seats that you are assigned. But Southwest isn't like that. Southwest is, you know, you know, get on. Well, it, it works fine a lot of times. But but here's one of the things that happens. Let us say I'll give you a, I'll give you a real world example. So when my wife and I were coming back from Florida, she had gone down a few days earlier. So her I, I booked her round trip ticket, and she you know she, we didn't fly down together. Um, so I, I booked her round trip ticket. So she was going down on a Tuesday, and then coming back the, a week from from Saturday. I went down like on a Saturday, came back that next Saturday. But because we didn't get booked together. We got assigned different boarding positions. So I was like, let's say, B-15, and she was like B-35 or, or whatever. So we get on at different times. Sometimes what happens at Southwest is they, they have a way of, they call it early bird seating. So you can get farther up the line, although they're not that, that much farther, if you pay an extra 25 bucks. So what happens when you have two friends who are traveling, and one is like in the A group, and one is, I don't know, in the C group? All right. So what happens is now theoretically, Southwest does not encourage people saving seats. So normally when you get on the plane, they will say, all right, find your seat as soon as you can sit in it. So what happens when you have that person who traveling, for example, with their spouse and they're getting on the plane 40 people ahead of their spouse? So the guy, let's say it's a guy, gets on and decides he wants to save the seat for his wife. So he's sitting in um, an aisle seat, and he wants to save a window seat for his wife. And so you get some other passengers come on, and they try to sit there. Is that seat open? No, 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 I'm saving it for my wife. And then what inevitably happens, and I've seen this occur, no, you're, you, there, there's no saving. Yes, I am. I'm not letting, you know, no, I'm not giving it up. And then you have the, these arguments that, that break out. Our flight back from Florida a couple of weeks ago, I'd, I'd never seen this happen. There's a stewardess, a flight attendant, who's parked in the aisle, um, like one row ahead of me, and she's saving a seat. I, I can see what's going on. There's a guy who had gotten on the plane beforehand, and he's trying to save a seat for his girlfriend. That's, that's who it turned out to be. And somehow he's asked the steward or the flight attendant, and she's doing this. So people are coming up and saying, I, I want to sit in that window seat. She says, no, it's taken. And they're, well, who's it taken by? Well, it's taken by a woman. Where was she? Well, she's in the restroom. Well, she wasn't in the restroom. The, the steward, the flight attendant was was not telling the truth. Now, I don't know why she was doing that, but I'm, I'm watching this whole thing occur. But in any event, there is this, this, this tension that occurs on these Southwest Airlines flights when you have some people who try to save seats and other people who say, no, I mean, I, I got assigned this boarding position. I got assigned this. And now, I, I mean, I'm on and I want that seat. Our number. 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Here is my question. How do you feel about saving seats in a situation like this where it's open seating and, for example, the airline encourages people to find the first open seat you want to take it? Well, what if I'm trying to hold that open seat for my wife and there's 30 or 40 people who are getting on before her? Should I be able to say, nope, that's taken. You cannot have it. 
855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. I will tell you seriously, the last three times that I have been on Southwest, I have seen in one fashion or another heated discussions break out over this. And Southwest, I mean, they want no part of this. They, they just don't want to get involved. But but should they? I mean, should there be a policy? Should you be able to save seats? If I get on and, again, my, my traveling companion isn't going to be boarding for another 90 people, should I be able to say to 89 other people, no, you cannot have the seat. I'm saving it for my my wife, my husband, whatever. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. As you might expect, people all over the map on this one. Jeff, I think find another seat and move on. Seems like a real first world problem, and people realize there's need to realize there's much worse in life. So I think what the person means is, okay, if you come up and you want a particular seat, and the person says, no, I'm saving that, you should just move on. Well, okay, I mean, here, here's the flip side. For example, at Southwest, you, you pay for access. It costs you more to get on the plane earlier. So let's say you're a relatively tall fellow and you, you want to sit in the aisle because it's just, it's just easier. All right. So you, you've paid your money and you get on the plane and there's like one aisle seat left. I'll, I'll give you an extreme example of this. And somebody says, no, I'm saving it for my husband. Well, where, where's your husband? Well, you know, he's, he's, 40 people more on, 40 people here. So the argument would be, how is that that fair? I wanted the aisle seat. You know, you're sitting in the window seat, and you're telling me I can't have the aisle seat because your husband is, you know, did not pay as much to get on the plane early. Well, I mean, at some point in time, then it's like, okay, well, why why pay for this? Why? What would be the encouragement? What would be the incentive? See, I, I'm not, I guess... Would I get into a fight over it? No. But do I think people should save seats? No, I don't. Let's talk to Peggy in Bayview. Peggy, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Peggy. Um, uh, we've been flying. We've been flying with Southwest uh, for quite a while. My daughter is now 17, so I have a family of three, and it, we always kind of had a contingency plan. If we couldn't get the three of us sitting together, right. either my husband or I would sit with her. And that, you know, trying right. to get at least two seats yes. together, because to get three together, forget it. Yeah. So, um, no, I don't think anybody should save seats. I mean, we, we worked really hard at trying to make sure we were in the A or the B group. Right. Just so that we didn't have to deal with that. Right. Now, if you were traveling, if I was in a situation where I saw a, a, a family or like a parent, two parents traveling with a small child, I, I think... Would I be inclined to move to have like one of the parents sit next to the child? I, I appreciate that, but I, if you've got two adults, I mean, I, I I love my wife dearly, but it's not the end of the world if you know on a two and a half hour flight, you know, she's you know she's two or three rows behind me. She might even enjoy that for goodness sake because she didn't have to hear the same stories, you know. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 right. No, thanks, thanks for the call. Um, eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to Jim in Kenosha. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello, how Hi, are you Jim. Doing today? I'm well, thank you. What do you feel about yeah. saving seats on Southwest? Um, well, I'm flying down there uh, to Orlando. We're uh, doing the Disney World thing with grandkids. Right. Um, I'm having hip surgery right before we go down. I I upgraded to the priority boarding because I'm going to want to kind of be able to stretch out a little bit. Sure. Um, and my, my wife is also upgraded to priority boarding. Right. Um and, you know, for someone else to come and do that, well, you yeah. know, pony up the extra bucks 
and, um, you know, right. pay, pay the fee or you can do the priority check-in if you don't want to do the uh, right. business select or whatever, which would, I opted for the business select. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I agree. And, and, and then um, understand if you don't want to do that, there might be the risk. I mean, you're going to get a seat, but the risk might be that you and your wife aren't going to sit together or you, you might end up having to be, you know, in a middle seat or something. And, and that's that's not desirable. I, I get that. But at the same time, is it fair to the people like you who've ponied up more money to say, OK, somebody is saving that seat and, and you can't have it? I just don't buy that. I, th- I think it's a problem that Southwest has to address. Yeah, thanks for the call, Jim. I appreciate it. Uh, Tom from Kewaskam says, Jeff, this drives me nuts. This has been an issue for a long time. It happened to my wife and I many times. Two open seats, and the person says they are saving for someone. And I tell them, no, you can't do that. Well, my wife is not as willing as I am to confront the person, and we always move on. The next time this happens to me when I'm flying alone, I'm just going to plop myself down next to them and make the flight miserable. I'm so tired of it. Pay if you want to, you know, sit together. Um, that's it. Jeff, this is the best I can do uh, to get what I want by following Southwest rules. I follow the rules. You need to as well. Yeah, and, but Southwest, like, like I say, they, Southwest doesn't want to get involved in this because they don't want to alienate these, the people who want to be able to save seats, and they don't want to alienate the people who get hacked off that they can't save seats. Um, Jeff, the seat saving happens when one person buys a priority seat and then saves it for the other that didn't buy the priority seat. I see that time and time again. I always pay, so I always get the seat I want. Another one says, another text, I pay the extra money. If I can have somebody go ahead of me and save me a spot, it really upsets me to pay $25 per person and then have somebody not pay the 25 bucks and get the seats they want and still be able to sit together. I See, I... I agree with this entirely. Jeff, it sounds like a problem the airline needs to address. Well, you you would think so. Jeff, Southwest boarding is a mess. I purchased the early bird option for three passengers to avoid having to save seats. Despite the early bird option, um, we ended up at the end uh, split up in the very rear of the plane. I reached out to Southwest to express my disappointment over the money I had wasted. They were unapologetic. Yeah, it's that, that early bird thing has gotten... Less and less valuable. It used to be if you spent the 25 bucks, you'd be in the A group. Nowadays, no, because they've added the, these extra classes of tickets. And what happens is if you spend the more, exp- if you pop for the more expensive ticket and the early bird, you are ahead of the people who are buying less expensive tickets and the early bird. So it's actually been sort of a subtle way to, I think, squeeze more money out of people, but it's what they do. Jeff, one of the issues is what you see is one person in the group pays the higher rate, the rest then pay the lower rate. The one who boards on first gets and saves the seats. This causes tension. I think if you want to sit together in good seats, you need to pay the higher ticket prices. Jeff, as long as Southwest Airlines have full flights, they won't do anything. I flew with them in August and saw no less than five people enter the airport walking and then request wheelchairs at check-in so they can board the plane before anyone else. Absolutely shameful. I will say this. There is a special place in you-know-where for people who falsely claim to be disabled so they can go to the front of the line to get on airplanes. I mean, it's if if that's the case, just all I can say is, is absolutely, you know, wow, that you're that desperate because you are going to get a seat. 
Um, Jeff, when we're split in our boarding positions, we just get on together at the last person spot. That said, I'm okay with saving a seat for a family member, but it not but it might not be the coveted window seat. Yeah, and again, for for my wife and I, it's normally we're able to sit together, and she is the perfect size. She's 5'4", so she fits in the middle seat, and it's no big deal. So, I mean, ideally, ideally, would we have aisle seats across from each other? Yeah, but, you know, she'll we, we can certainly sit next to each other. It's not that big a deal for her. But um, if if for whatever reason we can't have two seats side by side, it's not going to be a problem. I mean, we're just I'll, I'll see her when we get off the plane. There's no doubt about it. Jeff, I save seats all the time for my wife. Never had an issue. I've also seen flight attendants save seats. Yeah, the, I, I saw this, like I say, a couple of weeks ago. It's the first time I ever saw a flight attendant save a seat. One time a woman was saving four seats in two different aisles. I don't understand why anyone would have a problem with this. It's not like there isn't another seat available. Well, maybe, but, you know, maybe maybe you paid that extra money and you don't want to have to sit at the back of the airplane by the bathroom and be one of the last people off. No, I I mean, I, I understand. If Southwest wants to do it this way, that's fine, but I think, you know, you have to— you have to at least allow the people who paid that extra money because they want the preference. I think they should have the right to have that preference. But that's just me. 